um, passage of Scripture before us. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 9 this week. And we've said each week that um, the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gives to the people of Israel right on the brink of entering into the promised land. And the intention of those sermons is to realign and to recalibrate their hearts back to God. And so here we are. We're making our way through this um, wonderful book. We're on chapter 9 of 34 chapters. So we're going to start picking up some speed. Um, So here is this massive chunk of text. I'm sorry. This is probably intimidating, but we're... We'll work our way through it. Um, So let me just read this, and then we'll jump in and see what in the world this is about. Um, I'll remind you that this is God's Word, and it has authority over your heart and over mine as well. So here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. Remember this, and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, and on them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. And then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made, them a, and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are a stiff necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them. And blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. And so I turned and went down from the mountain while it blazed with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And when I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets... And I threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. And then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, but at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. And I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Taborah, at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh, Bar- Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. And I lay prostrate before the Lord those forty days and forty nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. 
And I prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, Because the Lord was not able to take them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out He brought them out and put them to death in the desert. But they are your people, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. This is God's word. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, I ask for your help with such a long and challenging passage. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you comfort the afflicted tonight and would you also afflict the comfortable. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine that it's fall here at ASU. It's not cold. The gray is gone. The snow is melted. It's 73 degrees, bright blue sky, gentle breeze in the air. And now you remember why you came to App in the first place. (laughs) And you make your way from math class across Sanford Mall to meet up with some friends for lunch. And out of nowhere, your day begins to change. Because there is a man standing in the middle of Sanford Mall, an older man who is shouting at you. And you don't know why, but for some reason he seems angry at you. And you think, I don't think I did anything to upset this guy, but he is yelling at me for some reason. But as you get closer, you realize that what he is trying to communicate is is not that he is angry with you, but that God is angry with you. And after he calls you a whore and demands that you repent and tells you that you're going to hell, he says that God hates you. And of course you leave, and your day has been somewhat adjusted because of this encounter. And you write off the whole experience because this guy's crazy, this guy's a radical, but deep inside you are upset at what this guy is saying and what this guy is doing. Now let me just say on the front end, I in no way support what those preachers do. I would be very happy if they never came back to ASU, as I'm sure you are, because I think that what they are doing is not Christian at all. However, here's a problem, because tonight, Deuteronomy 9 seems to support some of the content of what these guys are saying, because, I don't know if you picked up on it when we read this long thing, but the point of Deuteronomy 9 is this, God is angry at sin, and he wants to destroy those who perpetuate it. I mean... These guys theoretically could have used Deuteronomy 9 as a proof text for what they're saying, right? So we got a little problem here. What do we do with this? Two questions tonight. Only two. Not three. Why is God wrathful? And why do we need him to be? Two questions tonight. Why is God wrathful and why do we absolutely need him to be? So let's just look at these one at a time. One, why is God wrathful? Well, of course, this story, if you were following along as I read that enormous passage, basically is is recounting uh, a familiar story in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar, God rescues his people from the land of Egypt, from the land of slavery, and he brings them into the desert, the, the, the wilderness. And so they get going into the desert, and the people of Israel, this huge herd of people, camp at the base of this mountain called Mount Sinai. And they stay down there and and are camping and chilling out. And Moses goes up on top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to meet with God. 
And God gives him the Ten Commandments. He gives him the, the two tablets of the covenant. And he's telling him, you know, I'm choosing Israel. I'm choosing Israel to be my people. These are my people whom, whom I've chosen. And I, and I love them because I love them. And he's just, you know, kind of doting on his people. And meanwhile, while this is going on, the people of Israel are at the base camp, at the base of Mount Sinai, and they are fashioning an idol, a, a golden calf. And they say, we want to worship this thing. Blatant disobedience to what God had done and how God had rescued them. And so this is this uh, awful scenario where here they are. Meanwhile, while God is telling his people, I love them, they are saying, we love other gods. We want to go chase after other gods. And so uh, one commentary that I read this week put it kind of like this, kind of clarified it for me in this way. He says, the people of Israel are kind of like a wife that just after two or three days of being married to their to a new husband, begins flirting with and diverting her attention away from her new husband to all these other guys that she happens to be meeting. Blatant disrespect, blatant uh, disobedience. And so what happens next? Let me just read it. This is verse 16. When I looked, that's Moses, when I looked and I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God, you had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. And so I took the two tablets, threw them excuse me, out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. And then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. So here's the question. Why is God angry? Why is God wrathful? And here's the answer. God is wrathful because he has a holy hatred for sin. He sees sin for what it is. And he is angry about it. His anger doesn't just pop up in this episode, by the way, in this one little story. This is a part of his character. This is intrinsic to who he is. God is wrathful. He is for goodness and rightness and righteousness. And therefore, he is poised and has a stance against sin and against evil. He sees it for what it is and for the way that it destroys the world. And he hates it and he's angry about it. I was listening to a sermon this past week by a guy named Ricky Jones, who was an old RUF campus minister in Mississippi, and now he's, a, uh, he's got a church, the pastor up a, uh, of a church up in Tulsa. And he told this story that when he was doing RUF, a, a lot of the students would go out uh, and help out with some of the local ministries in this, this rougher part of town. Because there were these local uh, ministries that would have Bible studies for, for the you know, local kids in this particular rundown neighborhood. And so he tells the story of how one of his students came into his office and sat down and just began weeping. And, and Ricky looked across the table from me and said, hey, you know, whoa, what's, what's going on? What happened? And he says, hey, I was out at sunset this past weekend helping out with the neighborhood. And I was hanging around with this one kid, this little, this little boy, and, you know, we were kind of joking around and, and, and you know, kind of wrestling around a little bit. And, and I happened to, to, to tug on his shirt a little bit. And it exposed these scars on the back of his neck, these cigarette burns from where his mom had disciplined him by extinguishing her cigarettes in the back of his neck. And he began weeping because he finally saw sin for what it is. It is not just this amusement park, this forbidden fun that God doesn't want you to have. It is destructive. And it destroys people and it destroys families. It destroys communities and and the entire universe. And so when God looks at his creation, his good creation, and looks at the way that he has made people in his own image, meaning they are valuable and filled with dignity, and he sees the way that sin is ripping the universe apart and ripping people apart, 
He is angry about it. He is upset by the way that sin is destroying it and he will not tolerate it. I mean, just think about it. This, you would have the same reaction, right? You stay up all night writing a, a, a paper. You've got a, it's due the next day. You stay up all night cramming, writing this paper. And so you decide to get a little bit of sleep in, in between you know, 4 and 6 in the morning. And meanwhile, while you're sleeping, somebody comes into your room, comes into your dorm room, and wipes out your hard drive before you could print it. You would be angry. <laughs> and, you would, and that anger would be appropriate. Or for some of you art students, you know, you spend all night or, or, or countless hours, countless hours, days and weeks pouring yourself into this particular painting. You're pouring your heart and your soul into this, into this uh, piece of art. And then you come into the studio the next day and somebody thought it would be fun to spray graffiti all over it and just totally vandalize and destroy your work. You would be upset. And that anger would be appropriate. I mean, God looks at his creation, valuable and good and beautiful, and sees the way that sin is vandalizing it and perverting it and twisting it. And he is rightly angry. He, because he is for goodness and because he is for rightness, he is poised against sin and against evil. But I also want you to see that his, sin, his, uh, his anger against sin is not passive aggressive. When he gets angry, he actually does something about it. Unless, uh, you know, un- unlike maybe some of your situations where you get angry at your friends or get angry at your roommates and just... You know, don't actually do anything about it. God is a little bit more honest than that. And so what does he want to do? When he sees sin, what, how does he want to respond? Let me just throw out a couple of verses. Verse 8. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. Verse 14. God says, let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. Verse 19. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. Verse 25, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. God says, I am angry at sin and I want to destroy those who perpetuate it. And I know automatically some of y'all have problems with this. Whoa, I, I thought God was good and God was loving. I thought God was a forgiving God. What is this? This is all Old Testament stuff. This doesn't really matter, right? God is loving. And God is good, but I want you to see that those attributes of God don't just automatically override his other attributes. And the fact that he is good and he is righteous means that he is poised against sin. And it's not the, his lovingness doesn't override that fact. Let me tell, uh, I read this story and this kind of helped this idea for me. It was this, this made up story called the parable of the good cop. And, and the, the story goes something like this. There's this old woman who's walking across the street. And as she's walking across, this car pulls up, and four guys get out of the car. And they go over to this old woman, and they throw her on the ground. And they take her purse from her, and they begin kicking her in the ribs while she's on the ground. And to finish her off, one of them grabs a knife and plunges it into her back. Meanwhile, there is a cop across the street who sees the whole thing. And he aggressively runs up to them and smiling says, I want to have a personal relationship with you. You see the point of the story? He is not a good cop. While he is loving, while he may be good, he, he, he is unjust. He has a job as a cop and he is not fulfilling his job. He is bad. He is a bad cop. And the point is, God is a loving father. Yes, absolutely. But God is also a judge and a judge who is for goodness and therefore is against sin. And therefore he is angry about it. There was this guy in the 2nd century named Marcion. 
uh, second century AD. He was around Christian circles, and he said, hey, let's update our idea of God. This, this, this view of God that we're talking about, is, is, let's bring him up to speed. And so he said, let's cut out a lot of this stuff in the Old Testament and the New Testament where it talks about God's wrath. And so he did. He kind of edited his own body, uh, Bible and actually did chop out parts of the Bible. So he ended up with a Bible that he thought was more appropriate in a view of God that was absolutely loving. God was loving and kind of scrapped all this archaic junk about God being wrathful and angry. Some of you are probably like, finally, somebody's got a good idea. We can get rid of all this junk about God being wrathful. Because I know, I mean, I know for some of y'all, this resonates, this topic at least resonates with the world that y'all came from. Where you may have come from a church that was fundamentalistic in nature and, and threatened you into good behavior or guilted you into good behavior based off the fact that God was angry. And so I could see, I really could see how you would just want to cut this part out of the Bible and have nothing to do with it. Because this idea of God being angry, as you can tell from the people on the lawn, is so abused. It really is. But I want to try and show you that we can't cut it out. We absolutely need it. We need this idea about God being wrathful. And so here's the second question. Why? Why do we absolutely need this? Two quick reasons for why we need God to be wrathful. And here's the first one. We need God to be wrathful because this is what gives us a basis to stand up for shalom. I know you look at me and go, what are you talking about? Here's what I mean by that. When the Bible uses the word shalom, it means peace. But the way that we mean peace in our English language is so flat and it's so empty. It's, it's, it's not as rich of a word as how the Bible uses it. Shalom in the Bible is, is a word that, that means flourishing, full human flourishing and connection to God, where, where things are operating as they were intended to be. So it is a word that, that taps you into God's original design. It, it kind of points you back to Eden, where there is a world that is functioning altogether, everything's together, things are flourishing, there is no sin. It points you forward to the new heavens and, and the new earth, where, where God will remake individuals as agents of love and of healing, where he will actually remake communities without the abuse and without the division and without the strife. And he's going to remake the entire world. This is what shalom means. It is peace. It is flourishing. But we don't live in that world right now, right? We live in a world that is broken and is messed up and is vandalized by sin. And so when God looks at the sin and the evil that is perverting it and twisting it, he rightly gets angry because he wants shalom. He wants peace. He wants this world to be the way that it was intended to be. And one day it will be. But right now, this is what God is for, and therefore that's why he is angry against sin. I mean, just think about it. This, if you remember, Deuteronomy is a sermon or a series of sermons that Moses is giving. So this is what Moses is saying to his people. And here it is in verse 7. He says, Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Here's what's going on. Moses is looking at his people and saying, look, what y'all did in the desert was not okay. Y'all cannot do that. God was upset about, about that. And it's because God was upset about that, Moses has the basis to be able to stand up to his friends and say, what y'all are doing is not okay. He is willing to stand up for shalom in the context of his friends because of God's wrath. You see, you see the logic here? And so here's the question. Are you? Are you willing to stand up for what is right and to stand up for shalom with your friends. When you see your friends doing things that are stupid and are toying around with sin with something that can kill them, 
Are you willing, are you angry enough to stand up for peace and for what is right by talking to them about it? Because I know typically what we do is we say, well, I don't, I don't want to cause conflict. I don't want to disrupt the relationship. I don't, I don't want to step on toes and upset anybody. And so we think that it's more loving to not say anything. But I want you to see the only person that you are loving in that scenario is you. Because when you see somebody disrupting shalom and destroying their own life, you are not loving them unless you are angry enough at the way that it's destroying them to say something about it and to call them out on it and say, what, what is happening here is not okay. And I say this because I love you, because I see the way that sin is destroying your own life. You see what I'm saying? I want to talk to Christians for a second here. I know there's non-Christians here. I just want to talk to the Christians for a second. Because I know that for some of you, you are trapped in this prison called super spirituality, where you feel like if you get angry, if that emotion comes out, that's going to somehow ruin your witness, or it's going to jeopardize your faith in God for some reason. You know, as, as, as non-Christians look on and as the world looks on, you know, I, I know there's this pressure to kind of put on this Christian performance of smiling and this pretended contentment, like everything is okay and that God is in control when, when the world is disintegrating. And while, yes, while God is absolutely in control, you have to see that the witness that you are projecting to the world when you don't get angry at sin in the way God does is a lie. It is a lie. God is angry at the way that sin disrupts shalom, and therefore we should as well. Some of us are just simply not mad enough yet at the way that sin is ruining our lives and our friends' lives. I mean, we really should get mad at sex trafficking. That should make us upset. Some of us really should get mad at the way that our friends and our classmates are just drinking away their college experience. That should make you upset for your friend's sake. We really should get mad at the way that our friends are ruining their future marriages by the way that they are relating to each other now and just completely messing around or just downloading as much porn as they possibly can into their brain. We should get upset over this. And furthermore, we need to get upset about the way that sin is disrupting shalom in our own life, in our own heart. We should be angry at it. It is okay. God is against sin. He is for shalom. Jesus is. Jesus came into the temple kicking over tables because he was not okay with the way that sin was disrupting everything. So here's the question. If if God's wrath is what gives us a basis to be against sin, isn't this just going to turn us into the self-righteous sin police where we just go around pointing out everybody else's sin? If we stopped right here, I think it probably would, or at least it has potential to. But the, the way that it doesn't, or the, the only way forward to prevent us from becoming like this, is for us to see and to recognize that God's anger and God's wrath is directed at us as well, meaning you and me. When we begin to grasp that, that God has basis, a, a basis to be angry at me and at you, that's what begins to change this whole cycle. And so here's the second reason. We need God's wrath because it gives us a deeper understanding of God's love. And I know automatically you think, that makes no sense. Because God's wrath and God's love have to be opposed to each other, right? How can he be both? How can God's wrath give you a deeper understanding of God's love? 
Because if God's wrathful, then he's got to punish sin. But if God is, is loving, then he forgives sin. How can he do both? Well, let me just see, let's just see how the story ends here. Moses comes down from the mountain, right? They're doing all this idolatry stuff. God says, I'm angry enough, I want to destroy them. And so Moses kind of steps in, and here's what he says to God in verse 26. He says this, I prayed to the Lord and I said, Oh, sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Redeem your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says this, Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness, and their sin. He pleads. He's begging God, please don't destroy them. Just overlook their sin. Overlook their stubbornness. Overlook their evil. Just, just overlook it. And here's the crazy thing. God does. He overlooks their sin and he doesn't punish them. Now I know you're immediately thinking, that contradicts everything that we've just been talking about, right? God is against sin, therefore he has to punish it. So how can he just overlook sin? I mean, if you think about a judge, like one of our judges, if, if, if a criminal comes before him who is obviously guilty and he says, I'm just going to overlook your crimes and let you go out on the street. I mean, this judge would be run out of town. He's, he's being the bad cop, right, in that situation. God is going to be unjust if he does not punish sin. And yet here in this situation, he overlooks it. So what, how does this make any sense? It makes no sense unless... You fast forward through the story of the Bible and get to the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, an amazingly poignant (coughs) passage. Underline it, circle it, do whatever you have to do. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says this. God presented him, it's talking about Jesus, God presented Jesus as a propitiation. I'll explain what that word means in a second. Through faith in his blood. This is basically saying God presented Jesus uh, to do something on the cross. And then it goes on. He did this, God did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. You see what that's saying there? Romans chapter 3, verse 25 is saying this. God would be unjust if he just left the sins that were committed beforehand unpunished. But God is just. So the way that he demonstrates his justice without denying his love is to put forward Jesus as a propitiation. Meaning Jesus is going to be the one to deflect God's wrath away from his people by absorbing it himself. That's what that word propitiation means. It means to deflect wrath away from somebody by absorbing it yourself. Jesus steps in and takes the bullet from us, for us, and therefore upholds God's justice because sin is being punished and at the same time upholds God's love because God has forgiven forgiven us on the basis of what Jesus has done. You see what's happening here? God's wrath and God's love converge at the cross. But of course, right before the cross, while Jesus is in the garden, you may remember the story, He is distressed and overwhelmed. And he's looking forward to to the cross that's getting ready to come. And what does he say? Three different times he prays to God, God, please don't make me do this. He is terrified. Jesus is freaking out right before he goes to the cross. Why? I mean, Jesus told us not to worry, right? So is he just not practicing what he is preaching? I mean, does does this sound weird to you that Jesus is in the garden saying, I don't want to go to the cross. Please don't make me do this. Why? Why is he so terrified? Jesus is terrified because he knows what sin is and he does not want to be dressed up in it. 
He doesn't want sin placed on him. Your sin and my sin. He doesn't want the sin of cigarette burns in the back of some kid's neck put on him. He doesn't want the oppression and the degradation and the guilt of child pornography and sex trafficking and all that put on him. He doesn't want your secret addictions and my secret addictions put on him. All of our sin, the sins of the whole world, Jesus is putting on himself and he sees it and he knows what it is and it is filthy. And he does not want to be dressed up in it. But the second reason why God is terrified of what is coming is because he faced a death that had no hope whatsoever. He did not face a death that had hope on the other side. You know, there are these Christian martyrs that have been persecuted and have died for their faith. And, and the, the way that you hear them talking about it, there's, there was this group of uh, uh, Scottish Presbyterians in the 16th and 17th century that they were, they were uh, killed. And they said, you know, dying is basically like falling asleep in one world and waking up in my father's world. And so there'd be, there'd be guys who are, who are literally walking up the steps to the gallows where they would be uh, hung in and say, I have no more fear walking up these steps as I do walking up the steps to my own mother's house. So some of the guys literally, I mean, it's reported, uh, were kissing the pole that they were hung from because to them, that was just a means by which they were going to leave this world and go right into their father's arms. But I want you to see... Jesus did not have that kind of hope. He did not walk into a father on the other side waiting for him with open arms because he walked in front of a holy and a just and an angry God dressed in the sins of the world. And he, felt, he faced a God that was coming at him with pure anger and his sword drawn. As Ricky Jones put it this, in, in the sermon that I listened to, he said he was facing God as a holocaust. And he faced God for us. And the wonder of the cross and the glory of the gospel is that while Jesus was terrified, he still did it. He still faced it. He still faced the wrath for us. And so what is happening on the cross is God is unloading his cosmic fury against sin upon his son for us. And when you begin to see this, this begins to unpack at a deeper level how much God actually loves his people. This begins to unpack how much God actually loves us because out of pure love and grace, he says, I'm going to send my son in your place to receive the blow of my justice and the blow of my wrath so that you don't have to. All you have to do is say, God, I know out of your mercy, I I deserve what happened on the cross, but out of your mercy, please count what happened to Jesus for me. And God says, I will do that. When you come to me by faith, I will count what happened to Jesus in your place. And this is what prevents us from becoming the self-righteous sin police. Because we see the cross and we see, that should be me up there. I should be receiving God's wrath. I should be in hell apart from Jesus. And this makes you unbelievably humble. This humbles you to the ground. This does not make you the self-righteous, angry people that go around pointing everybody else's sin in that kind of self-righteous way because you're humbled. And yet, at the same time, you're still angry about sin because you know that God doesn't tolerate it. He had to punish his own son for it. It still matters. You still hate it in your own heart. You still hate it in the way that you see it destroying your friends' hearts. It's an anger, but it's a complex anger, right? Because it's, it's an anger that is tempered by the gospel. And therefore, it is patient. And, and it's, it's humble, and it's a loving type of anger, but it's still anger. In the same way that God's angry at sin. Let me close, let me close here. Let me wrap up with this. Imagine... Um, a man who's out hunting, and he's hunting for bears. 
And he's out in the forest. For whatever reason, he's hunting bears that day. And he comes upon a little baby bear cub. And so he puts this bear cub in his sight. Little vulnerable, helpless thing. And right before he pulls the trigger, the big mama bear comes and blocks the path and lets out this thunderous, enormous roar. Now that one sound, that big, loud mama bear sound, had two completely different effects on the two different people that heard it, right? Because for the hunter, that sound was the sound of fear and the sound of terror and the sound of dread. But for the baby cub, that was the sound of protection and security and safety. And so I know that there are some people here tonight that have heard the roar of, of the mama bear from Deuteronomy 9 and have felt nothing but fear and terror because you, you fear God's wrath. And if that's, if that's you tonight, I, I really just want to urge you to cling to Jesus and to say, God, please count what Jesus has done in my place. Let him be who satisfies your wrath in my place. And God, because he promises and he is good on his promise, says, I will do that out of mercy. I will count what Jesus did in your place. This is an invitation because if you do not have Jesus, then you face the holy fury of God. That is what you face if you do not have an advocate of somebody who will take it for you. This is an invitation. But some of you have heard the roar of the mama bear from Deuteronomy 9 and have felt the safety and the protection. Because you know, if you know yourself well enough, you know that you deserve God's wrath more than anybody. And Jesus has taken it in your place. And when you see that and when you know that and when the gospel begins to sink into your heart, this begins to fill your heart with a newfound gratitude and a newfound joy and a newfound peace because God has satisfied his wrath and therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And he has nothing but love for his people now. We're going to sing one last song and I just want to read one of the verses before we do. It's uh, in Christ alone and it goes like this. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. And then it says this, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid and here in the death of Christ, I live. Let's pray. Father, we see the, when we see the cross, when we survey the wondrous cross, we see your justice and your love converge, and it humbles us to the ground, and at the same time, it builds us into people that are filled with joy and filled with security and filled with gratitude. And I pray, Father, for those in this room, I pray that the cross would do that to us, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 500th time. Would you do it because you are good and you are kind and because the gospel is true? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.